0: Uh, we've been talking about doing this for, I believe, over two years. So excited to finally do it!
1: This is Van Color. Van Color. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, this is it. This is the guy. That I've wanted on the podcast since I started the podcast. He is the dream guest in that category with David Eby, Sandy Garasino, Tamara Taggart, Jugmeet Singh, Jody Wilson raybould I've talked to all those folks, but he is the last holdout of dream guests whose name I wrote down on day one when I started this podcast. He is an award-winning journalist who got his start in my hometown as a reporter for the North Shore Outlook. He moved on to the province and the Vancouver Sun, where he really sunk his teeth into political corruption and real estate money laundering in Vancouver. He broke the BC Casino money laundering and e-pirate stories in 2017, filing over 50 exclusive stories on the widening scandal. I've begged. I've pleaded. He's here. He is a national investigative journalist for Global BC. He is the author of... Of willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West, the must-read Vancouver Book of the Year. He is the best damn journalist in this country. He is Sam Cooper. Sam, how are you, brother? Well,
0: I'm really excited. It has been, I believe, over two years since we talked. You said... On, and uh, I wasn't holding out, waiting for the
1: right time. Well, I'm honored, and I wish we could be doing this in person, splitting a sixer, but you know what? I'll take this any day. Congratulations on the book, Willful Blindness. I know it compiles many years of work for you, and you should be very proud. I'm still making my way through it, but it is an explosive read. And I want to start at something that I've heard you talk about in the past. You've said that your time at Langara. During that time, your current beat started by being curious about how a city like Vancouver could be this city of glass, huge condo towers, immense wealth, the supercar capital of North America, and yet it's home to the downtown east side, disparagingly known as the poorest postal code in Canada with people, I mean, human beings who need mental health and addiction services, people who need care, people who seem to be forgotten. And this juxtaposition, this immoral paradox, is something that I've ranted and raved about, and I think it should piss everyone off. And I think your book really puts this together in terms of why this city exists in this way. I want to hear it from you. What is the inconvenient truth or harsh reality that we need to know about Vancouver that you've discovered in all your work?
0: Well, the way you set this up, it's almost like you're reading my mind. Uh, The book is in some ways a a retrospective of my career in journalism, which is not that long. But uh, you're right. I landed in Vancouver. I went to Vancouver. uh, I went to Langara College and I'm, I'm from the East Toronto area. And... It, I, I really feel that a lot of journalism is done these days online and uh, we, we don't even meet face to face anymore. But as my police friends would say, visibility in investigation is everything, uh, absorbing the sights and sounds. And I was shocked and I remain shocked to this day, uh, the conditions of the downtown east side. And I know there's a huge amount of uh, excellent journalists. Everyone has a take on it. Every uh, Many people... Uh, Think about how this area can change, but it never does. So I I'm, I'm, I just could never get my head around how this place could, could just continue to be such a, a magnet for death. And I, I know there are different solutions to it, but I just visually uh, walking, it, it was a magnet for me as a journalism student because I, I I wanted to go and see what the problems were. Of course, City Hall was part of the beat too. And I was struck in my uh, in, in my cub reporter learning year that uh, the council was a fractious place, just incredibly disrespectful among the politicians there. That's where I first saw the, the forceful and persuasive personality of Larry Campbell, the mayor. Uh, that's where I recognize that uh, the party that he rose to power with coming from the left side, it seemed that he quickly jettisoned uh, that party called COPE and uh, moved over to the center left or maybe even the center right and sort of got close to what I'm going to say right now, or, you know, a, a bunch of politicians that seem to be, talking the right talk about a uh, social good but really uh, I thought then and I <laughs> and every year after that they, they, they were really all about uh, development it seemed and so that in my early years I started to sense that uh, development money is extremely important in Vancouver and uh, Of course, uh, another huge thing that that occurred to me was there was a a big, really that Larry Campbell broke with his council, partly over, that is his party cope over a very fractious debate over putting slot machines for great Canadian gaming in on the Hastings racetrack. And uh, the council broke on that, he was the deciding vote for, for great Canadian and the rest is history. They got their slots and a few years later. Mr. Campbell was a, a senator and then uh, quietly got a board position with Great Canadian Gaming. So for me, if you can sense the direction, I just, Vancouver reporting for me is sensing patterns. And so I started to sense patterns around development money. I was starting to see that the drugs are just, in the Western world, and I don't think there's another place with such a concentration of uh, death for heroin abuse. Uh, the overdose situation is is insane, but I I hadn't really put together the development industry and, uh, the drug trafficking, uh, what really, I'm just going to call it a killing zone. That is the downtown East side. But as I grew in my reporting skills and, and experience years later, I did put together the drug, that massive drug market, the, uh, the money laundering going into real estate and really, uh, I guess, casinos were the final piece in some ways. and, and, the most important piece, I think, to understanding how Vancouver grew into the city that it's become.
1: And so there are so many takeaways from your book, but I want to get into what I think is the main idea. And if I butcher it, please do correct me. So for decades, there have been Chinese state officials, drug cartels, money launderers, intelligence officers, and business tycoons working together in moving and laundering capital from China to Canada, and they used a network of casinos in British Columbia, underground banks, business ventures, drug trafficking, and even human trafficking to achieve this. But also, the Chinese Communist regime worked hand-in-hand with international criminal cartels and organized crime, with the ultimate goal of the Chinese Communist Party to use Canada's economy, particularly the soft spot of economic infiltration, real estate, for Chinese Communist Party state activity, including espionage, to influence Canadian politics for Chinese state interests. Do I have it right? You didn't
0: waste a single word. I would agree with every word and the order that you put them in. (laughs) And for people listening to it, it's hard to believe. For me, I, you know, I, all those pieces, I saw them uh, over the years and, but I saw them piece by piece. And uh, you, like I, uh, like a lot of people that read a lot, realized there was a report that was leaked in the 1990s called Sidewinder, which essentially uh, laid out the the scheme that that you just said. And I had read the report and I, I thought, hmm, you know, this is really interesting. Some of this, some of this could be true. There's no way all of it could be true, but if, it, if 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 even you know a bit of it is true, it would explain a lot of things. But I still couldn't accept that all this was true because uh, it's just it's mind blowing. First of all, uh, as I write in the book, for people educated in the West, I think to 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 understand or even. Even open up your mind to the possibility that a very powerful foreign government that's authoritarian uh, actually has very bad plans for democracies and is working hand in glove with organized crime. And in fact, at the highest level, some of the most powerful officials not only working hand in glove, but according to my more aggressive sources that I believe now, uh, in fact, powerful officials directing some of these gangs. And mm. that's one of those factoids that I, I read, I was told, and I, I then found for myself in Canadian federal documents about uh, a police investigation that this this is a mind blower, uh, was listening in on phone taps to how a, a Macau and Hong Kong triad gang war was spilling into Vancouver. So Canadian police had the opportunity to hear a, uh, a, chi- a high level Chinese official sort of direct these gangs because uh, it was time for that war to end. Too much money was being lost. So you're uh, going back to how you laid out and you asked, did you get it right? You did. And part of, uh, I think part of my narrative in the book is explaining how I couldn't, I had to put, the, I had to see this for myself uh, in order to believe it. I I require a lot of confirmation to to sort of uh, accept a thesis. And once I had broken the casino money laundering story, I started to see, uh, you know, more tips came in. There was more confidence from people inside government that this guy is really getting it. And they pointed to some uh, people from, uh, let's just say, very, very connected to the Chinese state uh, and, and and the Chinese military And uh, the record said that these people were in the top 10 list of the VIPs, the Whale Baccarat players, the industrialists from China, that were getting those bags of cash from the man that everyone now knows his name, Paul King Jin. So here's another data point where I say, well, that lines up perfectly with, with what Sidewinder was saying, that is, powerful Chinese state officials are involved in criminal activity, with uh, the roughest gangsters in town. And so once I had seen that, that's when I knew I had to take something like this book to the next level and and really tell Canadian people that I too once didn't believe this. It it seemed like tinfoil stuff, but now I've got the records in front of my, uh, uh, on my fingertips, I can write the story and I'm seeing the evidence of it in front of my face in Vancouver. I know that some of these compounds, these massive mansions, uh, that no one really knows what the, you know, how they were built, what money was behind them. Now I have the records that can show that there, there are stashes of uh, prohibited and restricted weapons inside. There's illegal casinos. They're connected to all kinds of nefarious business in British Columbia and the world. And I'll end this little, uh, little answer by saying this. Uh, not only are they connected to all kinds of uh, criminal networks in the world, BC has become a command and control hub for these operations. That is Chinese transnational crime that's directed from up high in the Chinese state has a solid base of operations in British Columbia. And that to me is just, I can't even explain how uh, fearful that makes me for Canada's future.
1: It makes me fearful just hearing you talk about it. And it is a mind blower. But again, going through the book, it's very detailed. You are certainly confirming it and talking, you know, Not talking out of school, not speculating, you are presenting a very strong case with a lot of facts. And I think one of the cases that you make in the book is that this whole system, this was not an opportunity that was seized by a few actors. This was a meticulous, well-organized grand plan that, as you just said, Canadian intelligence knew of in the 1990s. And you talked about that secret RCMP CISA study called Project Sidewinder, which reported that Triad, the Chinese Transnational Organized Crime Syndicate, business tycoons, and Chinese intelligence operatives had corrupted Canada's institutions by using legal and legitimate businesses like real estate to influence Canadian politics. And I will say, you know, it sounded like the Sidewinder report was actually buried in 1997 by the governing federal liberals under Prime Minister Chretien. So, if the Canadian government and Canadian intelligence knew that all of this was happening, why did it continue to happen?
0: Well, that, that's the question that, that the first thought comes to my mind, uh, that if we have the answer, we might have the answer to why is Canada's government still considering a Huawei 5G network when it, all the evidence uh, has, has already been put out there by countries, the governments in Australia and the United States, that Huawei is a military intelligence-linked corporation. This is not a, a business as we understand it in the West. Huawei has, be, has been involved in spying on officials in foreign lands. Huawei technology uh, allegedly used for, uh, you know, spying on uh, populations such as the Uyghurs. And so why has Canada not rejected 5G? I'll just leave that there for now. But... Again, the the thesis of Sidewinder is it really starts with uh, Beijing's understanding that in in taking Hong Kong back from the British, uh, there would need to be some uh, accommodations and partnerships made with the triads who essentially, uh, with the tycoons, were the most powerful interests in Hong Kong. And so the Sidewinder report lays out how a deal was made between the party in Beijing and these powerful tycoons, who, by the way, uh, as Sidewinder uh, showed, became very, uh, very, very influential real estate investors in Vancouver. So this deal was made where something called the United Front, would uh, which is a Chinese foreign affairs and, and really interference and espionage network, would be used to bond uh, Chinese intelligence and try and operate operatives and tycoons in Hong Kong and get them together in business and get them together in, uh, really uh, preparing the city for that handover and getting them together to stand against democracy for for the large portion of the population there that, that wanted their democratic lives to continue. So I can see now that I understand the, the the patterns and I understand the actors, I can see that this same type of activity can be seen in cities such as Vancouver and Toronto. That is Uh, With my documents, with my photographs, with my sources, I can show connections between high-level RCMP suspects, Chinese consulate officials, and the people that you would see uh, waving giant red flags, if anyone remembers, uh, in the summer and fall of 2019. These protests to counter uh, Hong Kong Canadians who were out representing for democracy and their concerns about what was going on in Hong Kong. I can see that united front activity that bonds organized crime suspects and Chinese consulate directors and uh, what appear to be uh, very wealthy students in the streets of Vancouver. And so this is uh, this is very concerning to me for, for Canada's democracy. And your original question was, how can this still be allowed to happen in Canada if Canadian intelligence knows that it's happening? Uh, well, my answer would be, uh, Hong Kong Canadians, Chinese Canadians are the best sources for Canadian intelligence in some ways. They're the ones that, that help uh, police and Intelligence Canada understand who's being harassed, who's being surveilled, what the concerns are in the diaspora community uh, with with people that say so many people came to Canada for democracy, but there's a fear within these communities that there's sort of a growing strength within the pro-Beijing and uh, Favor uh, the people that favor the party in Beijing and China's growing strength. So they, th- these sources, uh, including people that uh, were surrounded in a in a church in 2019 by some very aggressive pro Beijing nationalists, tell me that Canada isn't really doing anything to stand up for them and make sure that uh, they are they're not intimidated and harassed. So. I can't answer your question about why it's still happening in Canada, except to say that Canada is lacking the the type of uh, forceful anti-interference laws that Australia has instituted in the past two or three years. Australia, a country very similar in makeup uh, to Canada and facing the same threats from uh, the People's Republic of China. The other factor would be, I hate to put it this way, but... uh, documents sources and what i see with my own eyes uh what i what i read from the actions of certain actually a lot of politicians corruption is a factor more than willful blindness corruption is a big factor in british columbia it's a big factor in ottawa it's a big factor in you know various corporate interests based in montreal especially with regards to people's republic of china
1: and so i guess all this money was Coming into Canada. And I guess because there was no capital flight out of Canada, politicians, Canadian government officials were willfully blind, or perhaps as you're implying, maybe even complicit in allowing these systems and these networks to expand. But it has become a huge problem when we talk about real estate and housing, particularly in Vancouver, because this was a financial instrument used in a lot of these money laundering activities. So then another big question is, how much of Vancouver's housing unaffordability crisis is a direct result of the Vancouver model of these narcos, business tycoons, and CCP agents infiltrating the Canadian economy to expand business and gain influence in this country? It's
0: difficult to to quantify it exactly, but uh, as I I write in the book, uh, there was a a secret RCMP police intelligence study uh, from very knowledgeable people about transnational crime. And in in just one very high-end sample, they examined all transactions from between 3 million and 30 million in Vancouver real estate that year. And they cross-matched all transactions against their criminal intelligence databases. And they found that, first of all, really there was... Uh, a dominant buyer in the high end, and there was a dominant network in the high end, and there was about 1 billion in uh, criminal-linked real estate transactions in that 3 million to 30 million bracket, one year, 2016, and that 1 billion can be linked directly to these Chinese transnational crime networks, which include... uh, uh, Really a range of actors, but most importantly, uh, the very same casino loan sharks that have become familiar since I broke the e-pirate story that have become much more familiar uh, in the Cullen Commission, which has uh, pried loose some amazing evidence. And these casino loan sharks are the very same kingpins of the fentanyl and heroin industry in North America that have used Vancouver as a base, especially since the, the late 1980s. So, I look at it this way if we have uh, the most powerful transnational gangs that are, you know, Vancouver, that would be most specifically cities, you know, municipalities like Richmond and in Ontario, uh, Markham and Richmond Hill, these have become international bases for the most powerful drug gangs, the biggest uh, professional money laundering services in the world. So, Canada especially these municipalities, is extremely important for the biggest drug gangs in the world. That money has just been uh, powerfully flowing into real estate since the late 1980s. And let me take a, a, just scale back a step. Remember, we're talking about tycoons that, according to Sidewinder, according to my own sources, uh, extremely credible, these tycoons are directly connected to heroin trafficking triads. So let's think about these large swaths of land bought in the late 1980s. It looked like a great thing for BC's economy, but if we really look deeply into that money, I think uh, my my argument and the argument of some of my sources would be that money was already laundered in Hong Kong from various uh, criminal sources. So it's money laundering, in my view, right from the very start of large portions of Vancouver. And then you get that loop going where this underground banking, drug money in uh, East Asia, really around the world, and these underground banks in Canada becomes a form of sort of, I call it liquidity or leverage, where this drug money is, uh, is used to facilitate trade around the world. And it's used to help people who want to escape China and really to steal from their own country, if you think about it, get around that $50,000 capital barrier, and you do it by depositing, whether it doesn't matter if you're a corrupt official, a drug trafficker, or you're just an honest family man that wants to get out of China and start a better life, you're using a drug bank in China to put down your money, whatever its source, and get paid out in Canada. Or if you're a if you're a, a big business person, a powerful narco, you don't even have to put down that deposit in China. You fly to Richmond because Paul King Jin is going to take care of you. Not just Paul King Jin, I use his name. You know, he's a very prolific admitted loan shark and uh, his gang will take care of you. Uh, they'll 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 introduce you to all kinds of criminal pleasures and you can pay him back in China. And what does that do? that uh, you get you get drug cash in your hand. No one's stopping you at River Rock Casino from using it to buy chips, and you pay back your debts in China, which facilitates more drugs coming into Canada. So how, how much impact has that had on the real estate market when you consider that it's drug money, amazing billions, uncountable billions of drug money that gets mixed in with licit money in Canada and China and pours into real estate in Vancouver, that real estate is used as collateral to, to fund real estate purchases around the world as well. It's, a, it's just, I, it's hard. All I can say is that prices in Vancouver don't match the incomes of the people that uh, live and pay their taxes there. So there has to be a huge impact on this underground banking and drug money on these real estate prices.
1: And so where I get confused is, and maybe this is a dumb question, but if the government of China has capital controls in terms of how much money can leave the country, but Chinese Communist Party members and their affiliates are some of the people who created the system to move money out of China, like why do they have these capital controls in the first place? The
0: rules are for the little people, Mo. No, <laughs> no th- there's a lot going on. Certainly, corruption is a, a big, a big part of it. The people that uh, would would be at the very peak of the Chinese Communist Party are so uh, so powerful there that in most cases they don't have to escape with their capital but anyone who who is sort of outside that that little uh, group of families that run really do run mainland China at any moment uh, they they could they they could be disappeared so if you're not, you know, if you don't command arms, if you're not the most powerful, then you always have to think about hedging your bets and mm. sending money abroad. That's one, one, one part of the, the, the equation. But there is a level of, uh, uh, direction in that I, my, my book uses the case of Lai Chengzing, who was an extremely important figure in the, the history of DC casino money laundering and, uh, Canadian counterintelligence. This was uh, the largest smuggler of his day. He, he essentially controlled uh, China's oil trade. He smuggled anything from, from guns to cars to, to weapons. And uh, he did this through corruption and corruption of, you know, the highest levels of China's government. And in his own court testimony, testimony in Canada, uh, he eventually had to run because he got astride of the wrong people in China. But he said, earlier in my career, when I was still relatively in the good books, they said, you're getting so big in uh, in Fujian, the southern uh, China coast. Uh, you need to go, you need to take your racket over to Hong Kong, work with intelligence there, get intelligence on the democracy, democracy movement and uh, Taiwanese military operations and uh, send us back information. So this is what, when I got a quote from David Mulroney, who said, The party is not squeamish about using any tool. Organized crime and the party work hand in glove in the United Front and especially in diaspora communities. That shows how the party uses its most powerful criminals, sends them abroad, uh, exports, allows them to export their wealth and do business abroad but do business for the party. That is, they're reporting back and they're fulfilling the party's ends. Some of the party's ends would be buying up important assets in other countries. Some of the party's ends would be reporting back on dissidents. Some of the party's ends would be influencing the politics of foreign nations to to make uh, them more favorable for Beijing.
1: When we look at the arrest of Canada's top intelligence official Cameron Otis, does this... Well organized plan and system to have gangsters and the Chinese Communist Party economically infiltrate and politically influence. Influence might actually be an understatement, but influence Canada. Is this kind of an inside job? Like, did Canadian officials knowingly aid, abet, protect, and provide national security secrets to these criminals and antagonistic state actors from China?
0: So the Ortis case has yet to be tried. Uh, The the allegations are extremely concerning and they are not admitted. They're not denied that I know of. So I've tried to reach Mr. Ortis a number of times for comment. I I can't get an answer from him or his lawyer, but these are the allegations. Ortis was using his position as Canada's top intelligence official to uh, sell Bye-bye's operational targeting information to uh, some of the biggest uh, gangsters in the world. Uh, we're talking the network of uh, a man, Paul Kanani, who was known to be the, the, really the biggest, one of the biggest, if not biggest, terror financers and money launderers in the world, moving money and guns around the world for the most dangerous drug cartels, terror groups, and uh Ortis was allegedly selling RCMP operational plans to Kanani's network in Toronto. Same thing in Vancouver, which has become a crucial hub for encryption technology used by transnational narcos from uh Colombia, Mexico, across the across Europe and Canada. It again, the allegations are that Ortis realized it could be profitable to himself to sell the FBI's plans to these people running these companies that are facilitating the worst crimes in the world. And so what I say in my book is that the, these are this is one level of alleged protection of the highest level of organized crime that points towards self-interest. But my sources in the RCMP and intelligence would say that it, it could be worse than that. He could be assisting state actors it the damage to the units that he was responsible for looks so so egregious that the question is was he sabotaging the RCMP's operations what would that accomplish well that could make it you can see how that could make it easier for states such as China and Iran to do their business in Canada and really uh, the the way that those countries see Canada is a good jump off point for their real target which is the United States that brings me, I think, to the final port point on, on, on this question. Canada has lost the trust of countries such as, uh, to a certain extent, uh, countries such as the United States and Australia. Uh, we just read the other day of a massive FBI sting together with the Australian police at about the time that the FBI took down one of these BC encryption technology companies allegedly protected by DORTIS. The FBI started a, a fake encryption technology company so that three Vancouver companies that were taken down would, would lose their customers and go into this fake company. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem that the RCMP was involved in that operation at all, maybe on the periphery. So uh, from my judgment, it, it, it could be that the FBI was running an operation. Maybe, maybe they were... Uh, covering their bases and wondering, would they see how deep the rot in the, in the RCMP was? Did it go beyond one or two people? But it, it just, uh, what I'm trying to say is that Canada, the Ortis case shows how deeply compromised and weakened Canada has been. And it could be the case that uh, state, other states were involved and not just high level criminals.
1: So Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West on this podcast, pointed to some members of the quote-unquote political class, and we talked about Macmillan LLP and Macmillan Vantage, and he made the brazen accusation that a lot of these politically connected groups in Canada were working against the Canadian national interest. He also pointed to some politicians who he felt were playing footsie with the United French, which as you mentioned, is a network of groups that are organized and controlled by the Chinese Communist Party to advance Chinese state interests abroad. So just level with me here, Sam. How compromised are Canadian political institutions with Chinese Communist Party influence? Is the CCP pulling strings on Canadian political and policy decisions?
0: The simple answer is yes, and uh, I, I didn't uh, hear uh, Mayor West's interview word for word. I know the allegations that he made, and uh, he was right. Let me put it to you this way: C- Former CSIS director Ward Elcock said, uh, it, "It's clear it has been for for a long time that in a number of ways, China is the greatest threat to Canada on a, a public safety level on a uh, erosion of sovereignty level, this nexus that I'm talking about of organized crime transnational protected at high levels in China, used at high levels in China, working together with United Front and Chinese intelligence is bar none the worst threat to Canada. And so Mr. Elcock told me, uh, of course, Beijing is trying its hardest to, uh, to, to pressure and use Chinese-Canadian politicians and make them think that they owe some allegiance to China. But don't get it twisted, Mr. Alcock said. It's just as likely that, that politicians of any ethnic background are being used by China. And of course, not just China, uh, Russia, Iran would be among the, 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 the great threats as well. But China is the worst threat. And, uh, you know, uh, politicians with last names of, uh, you know, French or Scottish origin are some of the worst cases that I know, not just politicians, bureaucrats, uh, could be senators, could be uh, people in this trade lobby that I'm speaking about that's very strong in the Montreal area. A network of lawyers and industrialists that are very if you want to use the term footsie the mayor west was right there's a lobby of corporate interests in montreal and ottawa that have been playing footsie with the highest levels of the party in beijing for a long time mutually beneficial and i'll say uh flat out i believe it when my sources tell me that there are uh, documents in british columbia and ottawa that would blow people's minds If Canadians knew the level of corruption, uh, they would start to understand uh, some of the the really strange goings on uh, in Ottawa uh, in in terms of this country's relationship with China and and unexplained activity.
1: So why can't we see these documents?
0: It's a situation like the Sidewind Report. That was leaked. It would take uh, for for some of these documents to come out... uh, Uh, I'll tell you this, it's not for lack of filing uh, access to information or freedom of information (laughs) requests with great specificity. And the the officials I'm talking about know, know, (laughs) they know what I'm talking about. Uh, I know names, I know dates, I know allegations, and uh, all I can say is when when you look at the e-pirate revelations, when you look at how brazenly British Columbia casinos were used when uh, you look at uh, politicians rubbing elbows with, uh, with loan sharks who maybe months later uh, are the subjects of targeted shootings in a Richmond restaurant that could have killed families, that is the evidence for uh, your listeners, Mo, for anyone that sees it, uh, that's the evidence that what is said in these documents that I'm speaking about matches up with the activity we see in front of us uh, In the streets, look at what look at these gang shootings in Vancouver, a shooting at YVR, uh, a a car of gunmen uh, racing away, shooting at police. How bad does it have to get before people realize that the level of narco hub activity on Canada's west coast is is world level, and that's why you see this violence.
1: When you talk about these provident loan sharks and drug kingpins rubbing elbows with politicians, what level of politicians are we talking about? Are we talking about some, I don't know, park board commissioner? <laughs> or I mean, I guess there's only one park board. I should say school board trustee. Or are we talking about you know uh, people in the federal cabinet?
0: Everything, and it's <laughs> uh, it, you. you it, we laugh, but literally everyone from a school board trustee, everyone from a uh, officials that would allow Confucius institutes to uh, to come to town or who would go on junkets with uh, Confucius Institute actors over to uh, Beijing and and then nefarious activity would, would follow maybe you know uh, China would be seen in a certain way in in Coquitlam sort of uh, schools that that wouldn't reflect the way uh, really a democracy should be studying that country. So so what I'm saying is it starts at the lowest political level and according to my sources, goes to the highest political levels in Canada. So what does that mean? It means, I mean, another news story the other day, the United States is looking at how it will, of course, the United States sees China as the greatest threat really to the world. And uh, uh, this is not a partisan activity in the United States. This is bipartisan, it's uh, very broad, and they are looking at all levels in the United States of, of how to counter the threat that they see, and they're looking at Canada and, and, mm. and asking, is Canada going in the, in the same direction? So uh, it's going to, I would say it's going to, these things that I'm talking about, these allegations of how deep the corruption is in certain portions of Canada's establishment, uh, it's going to come to a head politically with our greatest allies.
1: I guess I just mean when I'm talking about which level of government. Are are we talking about the prime minister? Are we talking about you know the federal health minister? Are we are we talking about those people too? I'm not
0: sure if on your show today I will say it's the prime <laughs> minister involved, but I will say that uh, senators would be believed to be uh, agents of uh, Beijing. And uh, again, all the way from uh, municipal city halls up to the Parliament Hill there there are people and uh, really uh, what my sources would say it very often it's the people the the business backers behind these big politicians that have their hands much more sort of uh, on the what what could be seen as covert activity mm-hmm. or influence but my answer would be, If we have the prime minister standing up in in parliament and and he's being asked, can you give us some answers about what looks like an extremely concerning case of uh, all these uh, dangerous pathogens being sent inappropriately from a lab in Winnipeg to uh, the, the high-security lab in Wuhan. Can you tell us what you are going to do about this situation? Give the Canadian people a little bit more visibility on the concerns here. And the Prime Minister shoots back with, well, uh, you're wrong to ask that question because it could inflame anti-Asian hate. Well, Mo, you and I know that there is a serious concern Uh Especially uh, in in the aftermath of the pandemic, with uh, with with mm-hmm. hate and hate crimes in Canada, we as Canadians are uh, very sensitive people. We we can look at that issue, but the prime minister's answer, unfortunately, comes directly from the CCP playbook. There was a, Senate, and I'm not saying that he's an agent. I'm saying maybe uh, naively he he made the wrong answer in that case. I would say that a senator recently stood in a, in a debate and said that uh, Canada should not be challenging Beijing on the genocide in Xinjiang mm. because that could lead to anti-Asian hate or it would be hypocritical on the part of Canada. I will say that that answer by the senator is even more concerning to me as the sign of uh, wittingly or unwittingly being an agent or at least a... Uh, doing the work for uh, the party in Beijing. And there's so many examples of that activity. As uh, Mayor West, really, I think, laid into that question before I did.
1: And we'll get into some of that, but I just want to go back to something you were talking about earlier. Do you have an answer for why Canada has not rejected Huawei 5G, whereas all of our other allies have?
0: The most uh, the, the most friendly answer that, that I... I could say is that uh, there's a, a level of concern with uh, the, the two the two hostage, hostages, uh, Canadian hostages in, in China right now, and perhaps uh, Canada doesn't want to jeopardize uh, those those lives. Uh, another answer could be some some think that uh, Ottawa was waiting for uh, former President Trump to lose and hoping that they would get a pass from. Uh, the Democratic Party, who might go lighter on Huawei, but as I've as I've said, that was wishful thinking because this is a United States government move against Huawei and China. They're not going to allow uh, a military intelligence apparatus to be in the deep in their five G network. And anyone in Canada, and I'm I'm, I'm certain there are people in these Montreal corporate networks that I'm talking about that very much would welcome Huawei. They they had their hopes blown away because they see that President Biden is just as strong against Huawei. So why
1: mm-hmm.
0: why why is Huawei still a possibility in Canada when it's involved? Knowing, I mean, the evidence has been being shown that they are involved in intelligence operations in foreign nations. At some level, there's corruption there. I'll say it straight out, Mo. Hmm.
1: Shifting gears here a little bit, I want to talk about your report about United Front groups directed by the CCP, hoarding personal protective equipment supply in Canada as the Chinese government hid the extent of the COVID-19 virus spread, which effectively drained our country of PPE at the onset of the pandemic. You were targeted as a journalist, and these United Front groups used the WeChat channel of Canada's Minister of Digital Government, Joyce Murray, who is also an MP here in Vancouver, And it created this stir for a couple of days, and then there didn't seem to be any consequences. Obviously, there's no evidence to say that Joyce Murray was involved by any means, but certainly her outreach channels were involved. Brad and I also discussed this on the podcast, and we were flabbergasted that there were no consequences, no reforms, no further questions about the people that perhaps Minister Murray surrounded herself with or perhaps was playing footsie with. Were you surprised by anything in that whole incident? Um,
0: in the whole incident, I, I would start by saying that uh, you know, people in CISA said, "Now the government will have to take us seriously." Uh, Sam, your story—there has never been a story in Canada that that laid out United Front activity so clearly and with such powerful evidence. That is why you're a target of Beijing. That is why Beijing's actors have rolled out these petitions and these legal, you know, crowdfunding uh, activities against you. That's why this sort of disinformation about you has rolled out for weeks or months. But you need to keep doing those that reporting because uh, there are people in the government just as they ignored. Uh, warnings that certain scientists should not be given access to the lab in Winnipeg. So they have been ignoring our warnings in Canadian intelligence about United Front activity for years. So was I surprised? Um, I would say that I was surprised how open and brazen these patterns were of the very people that I had been reporting on for their, the connections between alleged organized crime and uh political and interference networks in the united front were the very same actors that then counterattacked against my story and it was a sort of i you know it was a painful experience like week after week of all these you know false and malicious things said about uh, me and my reporting my motives but i knew i was going to write it out and guess what by them doing that, I gathered even more evidence about their activity, hmm. in the same way that in the weeks before my, my book came out, I saw some of the same frequent flyers uh, come out again. It seems very well timed with, with certain narratives against uh, amazing research, such as uh, researchers such as uh, Andy Yan. With uh, with Simon Fraser University, mm-hmm. who's done a lot of work about you know looking into the the impacts of global wealth in, in Vancouver real estate. So my 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 to wrap up my answer, it's just uh, I know the networks and the patterns and the players so well now that I can almost uh, I can see them leap into leap into direction and and leap into activity. And it just gives me more evidence so I'm never I'm not surprised uh by I wasn't surprised by anything except that it, it really seemed by the end uh very performative that it continues to be performative because they know that a lot of people will be sort of cowed into not reporting on uh important issues such as the genocide in, in Xinjiang if they know that they can be targeted by such a you know broad uh and I would say well-funded network.
1: But it doesn't seem to have hampered the influence or the infiltration of influence into the Canadian political class. Like it's it brought out a lot of information, it showed what people were doing, but has it really moved the needle on stopping this? In, the exposure
0: of their activity hasn't moved the needle at all. We're still in that same position, I would I would argue, where uh, the average person is still scratching their head, saying, why is Canada still considering a 5G network? Mm-hmm. Uh, why, when someone like Richard Fadden comes out in, in 2010 and says, we're getting quite concerned about how close certain politicians in D.C. are getting to China's government, uh, and then just gets hammered by the political class in Ottawa and essentially has to take a knee and apologize, Um So I get the feeling that there's a lot of Canadians starting to understand that there's something funny going on. The needle is not being moved back against this interference at all. And uh, again, uh, I've reported that Canada's National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians has said Australia is the exemplar for the, you know, for instituting new interference laws against these very same threats. And uh, The parliament has been, the sitting government has a blueprint to take action, and they haven't taken action at all. I've told you a few times, I believe I know the answer why, but uh, I think it remains for for other people to start hammering on that point as well. Are, Are you
1: able to say why you believe the answer why? There's a
0: certain level of corruption in Canada's political establishment. I'm I'm basing this on the statements I hear from various politicians and influential people and these, uh, and, and reports that I'm told are out there by very credible people about the level of transnational crime, uh, corruption and infiltration in British Columbia and the level of political corruption in Ottawa. With All with regards to the People's Republic of China.
1: And this goes even beyond what's detailed in your book.
0: This goes beyond. This is wow. willful blindness too, Mo. we <laughs> are getting the tip on it right
1: now. <laughs> I can't wait. I, I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about this talk show host on Omni Television, Ding Guo. He received a strong statement of support from his employer. You and him have sort of been having a back and forth. You apparently accused him of lobbying for Beijing's interests in Canada. He says you didn't check your facts and this is a false accusation. So I guess here's your chance to validate or or explain what you've said about him and and what's going on over here.
0: Sure. I'm not a, I'm not a student of a Mandarin or Cantonese for that matter. So some of my best sources would be uh, journalists who can read those languages. I, I point to, uh, an academic who's Chinese Canadian who reached out to me and said that there's a very concerning level of, uh, Beijing's influence within the, the Mandarin language media. Hmm. And so even before I heard from these people, uh, who told me about their concerns of the political influence of this one pro-Beijing columnist, I had already been in just in my casino and, uh, corruption suspect and RCMP suspect research, I had been looking at various photographs where Ding Wo was, um, let's just use the the friendly word, rubbing elbows, with, with people who I had been watching for years in some cases with regards to, you know, their flight from China with uh, what's believed to be hundreds of millions of uh, equivalent Canadian dollars that, who I learned were involved in these very same uh, alleged casino money laundering networks. Mm. And here we have a powerful and influential journalist uh, shown up at, you know, in very friendly situations with them. That to me, I mean, Mo, am I, am I out in left field? Is this not a concern? What if we saw a Quebec, you know, Quebec's most powerful columnist palling it up with a, uh, uh, the Rizzuto family. Mm-hmm. Would there be an issue there? So I read. I, I called uh, Mr. Uh, Deng directly with, and I, I asked him about those associations. Does he have anything to answer? Uh, I, I never heard back. So I, I, I still would like to hear from him on that. As to what he said about uh, my my book does say the evidence according to people that have transcripts of these Zoom meetings, these WeChat groups was that uh, uh, a lawsuit was Dinguo's idea. Hmm. Another reporter at a very established Canadian outlet outlet had a transcript of that call, called him up and said, uh, were you at the meeting? According to my understanding, he flat out denied he was at the meeting. My uh, academic source that followed his statements on TV and his writings said that uh, he was... He was advocating that a uh, uh, whole community, communities, should get together to strike back against my reporting.
1: Was this on? Sorry, was this on Joyce Murray's WeChat channel? No, th- this, this be, is. Separate. There's many WeChat channels. Okay. Uh, no, I, I understand. I just wanted to clarify if it was the same conversation. Not the same one. Okay. Not the same
0: one, but uh, in essence, I, I won't go on and on. That what I write in the book is that he. Was, according to the evidence and multiple sources, a controlling mind behind this sort of counterattack on uh, a story that my intelligence sources said was the best story ever at exposing PNA to front activity? Hmm. Why is he so involved in pushing back on that story? And why is he denying his involvement publicly and to a, a journalist? Uh, he never got back to me, but reportedly he denied his involvement to a, an established Canadian journalist. All of these, uh, all all this information to me is concerning. It's not personal. I exposed, again, let me hammer on that. According to Canadian intelligence, they said, your report means Ottawa now has to pay attention to our warnings. It's out there in the open now. I got attacked for that. And uh, I wrote in the book that this person seems to have been behind the attack, according Mm -hmm. to the evidence. And let's think about that. This is a powerful, influential columnist. Not only that, my book writes that he is involved in lobbying uh, Canadian politicians for what line up with Beijing's interests. I'm not saying lobbying like a uh, a registered lobbyist. I'm using the term, you know, as we broadly say, Mm -hmm. people lobby or pressure politicians to to move in directions that uh, they would like to see them go. So. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up my answer with this point and I do welcome in any sense uh, he can he can get back to me or, or anyone else with his answer but he said I didn't check my facts, I've told you how the facts were checked and my, my assessment of his pro-Beijing lobbying and his pro-Beijing writings comes from people who were in the very meetings where he was lobbying and people who have wrote, read his writings such as or his uh, you know, reports about him, such as when he tra- traveled to a Chinese state university. And I have this report, I've got the pictures of him sitting there. And he reportedly said, uh, China, Canada will be very important to China's future. Canada has no global strategy. Canada will not oppose China in any way. Therefore, Canada can be used by China uh, uh, to really uh, influence the United States. Wow. So, Mo, well, am I uh, am I making sense that this is a person who, you know, he we we read in the Georgia Strait newspaper that supposedly this person uh, is for you know uh, political involvement of Chinese Canadians, but the evidence I've just given you with of what he's saying and what my sources who are academics and journalists are saying is he. His activity is about mobilizing China's interest in Canada. Mm -hmm. This is the evidence that I'm putting
1: forward. Wow. Well, fair enough. I want to talk about someone else completely different as well. The first character or person, I should say, that we're introduced to in your book is Ross Alderson. Who is Ross Alderson? And I guess more importantly, where is Ross Alderson?
0: So I'll start by saying that... uh, you're asking the right questions, and also there's some source privilege uh, issues that will come into this answer. Ross is uh, he's a person that uh, immigrated to Richmond. Uh, he he met his wife to be, who's from Richmond, uh, I believe. And when when they were in Australia, he was a police officer in Australia. He became. Uh, Ultimately, uh, the BC Lottery Corporation's director of anti-money laundering—he had been following these uh, reports that we've been talking about. How I sort of dug into the the real estate file from around 2014 to I'd say 1617. He was following my writing, and at some point, made um, the decision to contact me and sort of say, "There's more here." and you're on the right track. Uh, you're you're really getting somewhere important, and for for reasons that probably ideally he would be on this show and and explain. But what I've said in the book is he decided to give confidential information to me, and I know this is a question that uh that that has come up at the Cullen Commission, deeply confidential corporate information on BC casinos identifying the largest VIPs uh, tied through investigations to this criminal underground banking scheme and Paul King Jin and uh, other persons such as Kwok Chun Tam, uh, he gave me this information and as I read in the book, this was the code breaker that allowed me to tie many real estate, casino, intelligence-type documents together and expose the Vancouver model. So he as he explained it to me when we first met in victoria at an anti-money laundering conference in uh, fall 2017 said you've got so much of the story and this is very important for canada and you should have this information and so he gave it to me and uh that's what allowed me to write willful blindness
1: but he's missing right now
0: there's been a controversy that he uh he was called as a witness he hasn't testified the uh the 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 time for the, the hearings have come and gone uh all i can say is this for um source privilege reasons i understand that he still wants to testify
1: and i understand there's only so much you can say but why aren't people looking for him if he was called to speak at this public inquiry? Why aren't the RCMP out there looking for him?
0: I know that, uh, I know there, there's, let me let, all I can say is this. I I think that the Cullen commission wants to hear from him and I think that he wants to speak to them. So, uh, you're, you're, your listeners will have to see what's the problem in the middle that's stopping that. That's all I can say.
1: Fair enough. and and so I do want to talk about the Cullen Commission just as we wrap up here, you know, I, I think there were a lot of high expectations set on the Cullen Commission, the the provincial public inquiry into money laundering in BC, particularly when we look at the Charbonneau Commission in in Quebec, where there were resignations, there were arrests and there was all this scandal. Some of the reporting on the Cullen Commission almost seems to be divergent. Like you and Ian Mulgrew from the Vancouver Sun are watching two different uh, uh hearings happening. And I'm watching it at casually and not as in depth as you are, but I kind of get this idea that you know, if heads don't roll, if arrests aren't made, if no one is there to blame in government particularly, that the Cullen Commission at least the expectations of it, will not have been met. And it seems to go against so much of what you've written and investigated in terms of this, again, orchestrated plan aided and embedded by Canadian officials in all sorts of areas of government, including the provincial government, particularly with regard to what was happening in BC casinos. So am I wrong to maybe feel pessimistic about what's going to happen at the end of the Cullen Commission?
0: I think you're, you're on, you're asking the right questions. I have sort of a, a number of different thoughts and, and answers. It'd be hard to put them all together. Uh, but your, your, your point about the Charbonneau Commission went to areas where people never knew, it, you know, didn't expect, and they found things that they didn't think they would find this is something that I was saying uh, before uh, before the commission and, and as a reason why the commission should go forward. You know, a few of us as reporters that have been very close to sort of the allegations and the documents know of powerful allegations that, that didn't come out in the hearing and mm. directions, especially with the, the state-sponsored crime activity. I know I know for a fact that there are, uh, there are people that were in, the, in, in government, uh, close to the casino file, that were hoping to give evidence about the types of things I've reported on, going all the way back to the Hong Kong High Commission and this case of tycoons uh, that were involved in Macau casinos. Allegedly, uh, the allegations are corrupting some people in the immigration process. Uh, the commission never went there. Fair enough. We'll say maybe they didn't want to look that far that, that far back historically. I don't think that they really probed a high level of the real estate file. I don't think that they really went down alleys that uh, they may have. Um, but I will say that, you know, I was fully, uh, as someone, I'm just going to come out and say, the person that has the most visibility on these files in Canada outside of law enforcement is myself. You're talking to him now, Mo, and I was happy with the casino portion. Records came out that names came out uh, that that really to me left no doubt that it was understood at high levels exactly what was going on with the drug money laundering. It was understood and people were warned that people have who have been uh, under investigation for high level narcotics files since the 1990s in BC, were the major source of cash coming in, were the major gamblers themselves inside River Rock Casino. This was understood by police. This was understood all the way up to the minister level, and it was allowed to happen. Why revenue? That's a slam dunk case. And if uh, if Justice Cullen doesn't, doesn't come to a similar sort of finding, I'd be surprised. And, you know, here's another little factoid. Justice Cullen, is very familiar with uh, the Fentanyl Kingpins, the Big Circle Boys. He was on uh, a very important case involving Kwok Chung Tam, who is a main figure in my book and and someone that I investigated as as really a a key to understanding how the Big Circle Boys took over large portions of Vancouver's economy. Justice Cullen is very aware of all these players. So I I have the confidence that he will come out with some very strong findings. But you are right in terms of going up to that higher level of the the tycoons that look like bankers, as I describe in the book, or the political, uh, the espionage angle that can't be separated from the money laundering, in my view. They didn't go there at all. So if they didn't go there in the hearings, there's no way that Justice Cullen could ever come out with any any rulings on, on that.
1: But even based on the casino file itself, I mean, the natural logical conclusion would be that perhaps some police officers, perhaps some people in government at a ministerial level should be in handcuffs, no?
0: I wouldn't disagree. And you know what? Even... Even more, even more to the point, that some casino licenses should be pulled. Mm-hmm. I believe the evidence came out in the hearing of reckless and knowing uh, activity that not only turned a blind eye to this drug money laundering, but actively sought what could be uh, expected to be money laundering in Macau. People, let me just take this moment to say. You know, People may read the stories and say, why is Sam Cooper always saying Macau money laundering? Uh, why is he already always saying the mainland Chinese VIPs? It came out in the hearing that this was the decided business model. Hmm. I'm reporting on those actors because memos were written in River Rock Casino. Plans were made at BC Lottery Corporation explicitly. We will seek the Macau VIP gambler market. Hmm. actively we're talking flights executives going over there just as let me just be blunt just in the same way that loan sharks in richmond flew to macau to recruit that business executives in bc government and uh, executives in casinos flew over to macau to seek that business wow so yeah it's a slam dunk case that people uh you know justice cullen can't throw the the cuffs on people he could, he could make some very strong recommendations about the RCMP on a systemic level. But like you, I mean, I, I do believe people should be in cuffs. I'd be surprised if directly out of these hearings uh, were the types of um, <laughs> any action that would directly lead to some of the names we've heard about uh, being thrown into cuffs.
1: Last question. Your book is doing very well. It's burning up the Amazon Canada charts hardcovers are hard to come by, by the way, even though I have two, I have two. But I haven't seen a review in the National Post or the Globe and Mail. And I understand that, you know, CBC and CTV might see you as competition since you're an employee of Global. But outside of a few radio hits, I haven't seen you on Global about this book. This book should have its own one-hour special, not just, you know, a segment on Global National. It should have its own special report. You should be on GPS with Fareed Zakaria, as far as I'm concerned. This whole book could be a movie or a a really great miniseries. You're doing a great job promoting it, clearly, in in alternative avenues. But am I off base to suggest that there's just not a lot of mainstream interest for this book? What's happening here?
0: Well, first of all, I mean, this is 100%... uh This is my byline. It has nothing to do with uh, Langara College, Vancouver Sun, Vancouver Province, uh, Global News. None of my, so it's only me. These are my findings. These are my documents. This is my evidence. This is uh, a journalist who was trained in history, philosophy, and English, who wanted to go to law school, but instead went to journalism, is putting together everything that he is absorbed in, in uh, uh, as a reader from a young age, as a history buff, and has gathered evidence and come up with, uh, you know, some assessments. So it has nothing. Uh, it's a different type of journalism. I've gone farther and dug deeper than than daily journalism uh, ever does. Let me just put it that way. So I would not fault uh, anyone. Um, you know, in any media company for, for not jumping on board. Again, uh, something else I would add is this stuff was hard for me to believe. The findings I'm coming to, uh, I gathered facts. I, I amazing number of highly credible sources looked around the world, got primary witnesses, talked to the people who were in Hong Kong in the 1990s. This is a first-person investigation, and You know, it is hard stuff to believe. I explained in the book that it was hard for me to believe what some of my sources were saying until I could see the evidence myself. And uh, when I did, I put it together. And I think it'll take people... I'm glad that that people are taking time to absorb it. You're still going through it. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say, um, you know, this took me three years to write. When I first got the paper copy in my hand and read it, I'm seeing new things that I <laughs> that I might I might not have recognized at the time. So I believe, I really think that I put everything into this, and I hope that it's studied as in as a Canadian history book. I really I hope it has legs, and the early indications are that it does. So before I ramble too long about your original question. Look, Mo, you scooped people, and um, I know. Let me. I, I know that some, some great print writers are reading the book right now. There may be some reviews that go up to uh, various outlets, and I will look at this in a positive way that people are doing their diligence and and reading page by page, doing some dog earing and bookmarking and uh, highlighting. And uh there's gonna be some rigorous reviews about this book that come out. That's the that's the way I'm looking at it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I hope it is seen as as you said, a, a book of history because it is so well detailed, but yet very easy to read. It's accessible, it's a lot to get it's a lot of people to to keep in mind, and, and it's a it's a tough story to to read, but it's easy. It's easy to follow in that sense. So I love your book, at least what I've read so far. The Van Color Ashram, who hopefully has done Sarah Berman's book, Don't Call It a Cult, will be hunting down their copy of Willful Blindness, because I know they'll love it. Sam, this is it. We're done. What What's your call to action? Uh,
0: my call to action is, now that we've done podcast one, we got to do another one. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but no, my call to action is, look, uh, early indications are... Uh, the Canadian people, (laughs) the Canadian readers are are giving this five stars. And so I, I really, it is a controversial subject. It's a controversial book because it's out there first. This is new. And I would ask, uh, I would ask as many people as possible uh, to read it and, and learn and, uh, and get back to me. That's my call to action.
1: I love it. Well, seriously, Sam, this was a dream come true, man. I am such a big fan. I think you're clearly the best at your craft. I'm truly in awe, and I believe that this country owes you gratitude. Certainly owes you a few bucks to go and read your book. And I'm <laughs> I'm actually sad that this podcast is over, but I just want to say that it's guys like you that make me want to do this. I am just a guy who started interviewing people, and now I get paid to be obnoxious and to give opinions And I rely on people like you to explain the observations that I make, like Vancouver being this extremely wealthy city that includes the downtown east side and how that doesn't make any sense when you really think about it. So what I do doesn't exist without people like you. I'm a huge fan. So truly, thank you and congrats on this incredible work. You are the best.
0: Mo, too kind. You've got a knack for what you do. And I really, I look forward now that now that we've done number one we got to
1: do number two pretty soon <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I' we will absolutely do this again thank you so much all right take care bye people you need to go pick up the book willful blindness how a network of narcos tycoons and CCP agents infiltrated the West it is of course written by our guest today the best damn investigative journalist in the country today he is Sam Cooper. And I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.